Let's start a conversation about race and religion in America. I will invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. It is in the New Testament. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Incidentally, it was a letter he wrote in advance of his arrival not sure whether he would ever actually get there, and many people believe that this letter was uh, Paul's way of kind of putting, compiling all of his most formed, passionate thoughts about Christianity, about social issues of the day, about Jesus Christ, about salvation, packing it all into a letter and sending it ahead of himself, knowing that he may not even, he might die before he gets there, but he wanted this message to get into the hands of, of the Romans. And so uh, when you read through this letter, uh, appreciate some of the context that comes from. I want to uh, begin this morning by reading two verses from Romans 12, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit about what they tell us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And I really want to zero in on this second verse. It forms forms the framework for the conversation I want to open this morning. Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but... Let God transform you into a new person. These next six words are very important. How does God change people? It's right here in front of us. By changing the way you think. Then, not before this happens, after and as God transforms me into a new person, by challenging and changing everything I think, then I will be able to learn God's will for me, for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Heavenly Father, I invite you to lead us this morning, even as I, not by my own desire, but by your assignment stand in front of your people today with the responsibility that I feel very incapable of, of speaking on your behalf to people about issues of racism, injustice, prejudice, and bias. I humble myself as a student today. You know the journey that I've been on for just a few months And how many times I've asked you to send someone else to deliver this message. You know how afraid I am not of being bold, but of my own assumptions and biases. Coming out through a well-intentioned voice that might inadvertently cause more harm than good. I ask you to forgive me for ignorance for rushing to judgment, for not fact-checking things I should have fact-checked, for being too loud or too silent, for overanalyzing to the point of paralysis. Please forgive me 
And please forgive generations of my family for the same. I'm hopeful that you can help all of us because we all have room to grow. We could use some coaching because I think your church is really ready to try something differently, to maybe tackle the same problem with perhaps some different methods. I sense in my heart the optimism that we're ready, but we really need some help as to how to talk and how to listen, how to understand, how to be compassionate and gracious. So I really need your help. I do not want to shy away from this responsibility you've given me, Lord. And the tiny little platform in this world that for whatever reason you've given me and you've given Echo, will you help us to honor you and how we're trying to look to you for your leadership? I love you with all my heart. In your name I pray. Amen. Um, I am completely white. I was trying to start with things we can agree on. And talking about race, racism especially, that word is a tough word especially for, for me, the word racism. Um, it's difficult for me to talk about it because I, I don't completely understand it. It's difficult for me to talk about it with people like me because many of us share the same assumptions and conclusions. It's difficult for me to talk about it with people unlike me because I find we don't even agree on similar definitions. For, we don't even have a common vocabulary. We don't agree what, on what the definition of racism is, what it looks like. We don't agree on how we define injustice or how we define many, 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 many different terms. And it's very difficult to have any type of meaningful discussion with people on any topic if you can't even find a common ground to begin from. It dissolves into a debate where both of us think we're right and we're waiting for our turn to talk which is most of what you'll find on mainstream media about any issue. It's not discussion. It's everybody thinking they're right, just trying to be louder, and we eventually get frustrated because we're not understanding, and no one's understanding us. I am fully aware that for some who are watching on Facebook and for some who are here, you may have what, I don't know if this is a real term or not, but I'm pointing at racism fatigue. You're honestly, in your heart of heart, you're, you're just worn out by the whole conversation. You're worn out by this, the 24-7 media cycle. You're worn out. You're tired because in your mind, you're saying, what is the fuss all about? I don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm so tired. Can't we just love each other and move on? And I know there's others who are tired, who have racism fatigue, who say, I'm tired because no one will hear me. Everybody just wants me to be quiet and move on. And I'm here with tire tracks on me. And you're telling me cars don't exist. Or that statistically speaking, I'm just an anomaly. <laughs> and how can you look at a brother or sister who's been run over by something and not act with compassion and at least want to understand and hear and help? 
So I know somehow, some way, in three weeks of us talking about this from the pulpit, a decision I made six months ago. Um, I didn't make this decision because I saw reports on the media of what was going on in Charlottesville. I made a decision six months ago because God started waking me up in my own heart to some things. I didn't ask him for it. Quite frankly, I've asked him many times, this needs to be addressed. Please send someone else. Please send someone else. I'm so aware of my own advantages and disadvantages. I'm very much aware of my lack of understanding and education and experience. And I'm not afraid to be bold. I'm not afraid to speak to issues. I am afraid of my own weaknesses and my own prejudices and biases, which might inadvertently make me speak incorrectly or inaccurately or incompletely to a very sensitive issue that could, in essence, make it worse rather than making it better. Does that make any sense to you at all? So with all that on the table, it's still my assignment. I was trying to be sick today. I was trying not to be here. I was trying to, you know, and I was sick. I was sick most of the week. My wife will tell you I've hardly been able to sleep or eat for weeks. This just is consuming me. Um, And again, it's not because I'm afraid to tackle something. I'm afraid that I won't honor it to God and the response. I won't be God honoring in the responses I have to deal with. Does that make sense? It takes a toll on how I'm a husband. It takes a whole toll on how I'm a dad. When I get, even before that I stand up to speak, people hear the topic and they've decided what I'm going to say and whether they agree or not and start making character assessments and judgments when I'm trying to have breakfast with my kid. And I know that jumping into some of these topics means that if I have a day where I'm having to walk with some people through some of these things, I may come home and be a little more distant with my wife and my kids than I want to be. And then I might not be as emotionally present as I need to be. And there's part of me that wants to push that plate away from me and be like, send somebody else. But it's for all those reasons I must speak about it. Because who am I to think that a few weeks of discomfort can pale in comparison to what people have been dealing with for thousands of years. I don't have solutions. I don't have answers. I am a student of this. But I do believe God is giving me a perspective from his word, not from the mainstream media, not from social media, not from one or two isolated books, not from one or two isolated conversations, but has begun with his word. And it's been amazing the doors that God is opening for me to learn, to understand, to have revelation and I think if you'll join with me just in this much to say, I, I am willing to let God challenge the way that I think. What do you have to lose? If you're thinking as God wants you to think, you'll come away more confident. If perhaps there's some error, some ignorance, some incompleteness, we're going to open up, I'm going to introduce a new phrase, we're going to open up some brain windows Several times throughout the year when the weather's right around the house, we just open up the windows. Saves on the air conditioning bill. You know what it does? It lets stale things that need to be let out, out. And it invites some fresh wind in. And that's all I've been asking God throughout this series. Will you help, if I'm ever going to be a voice 
and fixing a bad system or bad thoughts or bad behaviors. Your word tells me it starts by changing bad thinking. Will you start with me, Lord? Will you lay into these issues onto my heart and I consecrate my thoughts to you? And if there's some bad thinking in there, I'm not going to race to try and defend myself. And yes, it is uncomfortable and it is hard and it is unstomachable. And I am white and it is hard. However, it is so healthy and it is so necessary. It is so liberating. It is so hopeful. Because if you only focus on how things should be, that we should be able to turn on the television and watch a football game without having to have the whole thing contextualized by race and who stands or doesn't stand during the national anthem and who protests and how they protest and what we think about how they use their platform. Many of us across all perspectives are tired just by that because we're tired because we even have to have the conversation. And many of us just say, why can't we just, and then we float our solution out there. Why can't we just love? Why can't we just pray? Why can't, because 5,500 years of those things alone haven't solved it. Are they part of the solution? Of course they are. Of course love is. But do you mean to tell me that the Middle Eastern woman married to an Islamic man who believes that she should be domestically abused, rightfully, religiously. Do you mean to tell me that if she just could find more love in her heart, she'll be okay with all of this? You see, it's deeper and more nuanced. But yet the beginning is very simple. And all I'm hoping to do, I started with really high expectations. Lord, in three weeks, we're going to solve racism. We're all going to be snapping selfies with people of all kinds of different races and hashtagging them on the internet. We're going to achieve this really nice ratio of all, all the photos on our website. You know, we're going to find the one, you know, the one Indian family in our church, and we're going to make sure they're in every picture, and we're going to solve this. You don't have to be awkward. Can we just be real this morning? We don't want just a photograph, just a, a picture that's carefully put together don't we want this to be really genuine and real? And I, I don't assume that I have anybody in this room who says, I hate someone because of the color of their skin. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I think, can we at least agree that assigning an advantage or a disadvantage or love or hate to someone on the basis of their skin color is absolutely sin? Can we at least agree on that? Can we at least agree racism is a sin? Okay, I was like, man, if we're going to be weak on this one, I'm going I'm to lose it this morning. Because <laughs> what I'm finding is I have to be very careful in what assumptions I make. In fact, assumptions and generalizations usually get us into a lot of trouble. So, now that you're all probably nervous and squirmy, my whole goal for this three weeks is just to say, would you be willing to let God help you think a little bit differently? Would you be willing to let God just challenge your thoughts and your heart? That's my goal. <laughs> That's it. Not to solve racism. That's, that's a very... I, I was interacting. I sent a manuscript of my sermon off to a doctoral student in Indiana in August. And I said, here's what I'm thinking about going. On this first one, he says, man, you are so white, aren't you? I said, yes. I'm very white. 
It's like you're going to ride in on Sunday morning and be like, listen, folks, I'm going to solve 5,500 years of, of dilemma with one sentence. <laughs> How arrogant. Well-intentioned, but really ignorant. So, so what are some of these brain windows you want to open? I've probably already opened enough brain windows already this morning. Um, but I just wanted to see if we could agree, agree on a couple things, because in any conversation, you've got to start with some common ground, and then we build from there. Okay? And I, I really honestly believe in this room, honestly believe, there is so much more common ground than we would really, than we would really even recognize. For those of you that don't have the privilege of sitting here on a weekly basis, this is your internet church. Echo is a very diverse church, racially, socioeconomically, age-wise. I mean, we've celebrated uh, babies coming up out of the nursery, and there are people planning their 90th birthday here. Um, We have people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds and educational backgrounds and racial ethnicities here. And not just that... We work very, very hard to make sure that it's not that one particular race or gender, that we don't superimpose those expectations on different leaders. It's not just that people from different ethnicities attend here. They lead here. They make decisions here. They help shape ministry and culture. They have decision-making power here. Um, You know, we have folks here who are told in other churches that because you're a female, you can't do this ministry in the church. Within the last 10 years, this has happened. Right? We, don't, we try not to put those barriers up for, for people. I will also tell you that leading a multicultural church sounds great, and it is very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. Very, very hard. I'm talking to, I didn't ask his permission to share um, Moses and I had a little sidebar here. He, after he came down from leading us in communion this morning, I said, man, that was awesome. You see, Moses, Moses has pastoral leadership experience and has uh, been, uh, been serving, served in pastoral ministry in the Dominic, Dominican Republic and um, is, uh, is a married man to a lovely woman from Edgewood. Have a beautiful little girl. Recently received an awesome promotion at his job, got a 41% pay increase. Amen. Not awesome. And I said, Moses, that was beautiful. That was awesome. And I was like, all this, you know, doing communion, it's coming back to you, right? As a pastor, it's like riding a bike. And here's what he says. He's like, I was nervous because when I do this in Spanish, my heart language, there's just certain words that I've said for years that carry so much passion. And now I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage because now I'm reading in English. And do you understand there's just different advantages and disadvantages you have at different times in life. See what I'm saying? Do we hate Moses because English is not his first language? No. I have a different advantage than he does speaking to people who mostly understand English. And even people who understand English have a hard time understanding someone who talks as fast as I do. (laughs) They're not evil. But they exist. Advantages and disadvantages aren't always evil sometimes they are when people are manipulating those things for gain and for power but there is just part of who we are that we learn to do that there's just advantage and disadvantage i want to talk about that with you over these next few weeks i'm not in a race to rush through this i ask the holy spirit to help me prepare plenty of content to be sensitive in these moments to be connected with your heart to tell when when we're connecting and we're in some agreement and when we can just move on and when i need to maybe stop and explain this uh, some more. The problem that you have, the disadvantage you have is that I have been consumed by this for six months. And any of you who know me at all, the more information I take in, the harder it is for me to shut the faucet off. 
So I want to do, uh, I, I will really want to pace ourselves appropriately. For some of you, we will not be moving fast enough. For some of us, we will be moving way too fast. My goal is not a particular speed. My goal is just for us to come together and to find the common ground. We say, we agree, racism is evil. It's not a God idea. We're willing to invite the word of God to lay across our existing conclusions, things that we, our existing experiences, which we're not debating or arguing with this morning. Your experiences are truth to you. We're going to let the Holy Spirit lay across those things in our heart and invite him to open up a brain window. God, if I'm seeing something incompletely, inaccurately, incorrectly, will you blow into that today? Will you uproot any thought that's not of you and plant it with a thought that's you? Because if you will renew my thinking, my behaviors, my attitudes, my customs, the legacy I leave will be good and it will be pleasing and it will be perfect. So we can agree that racism is... Can we also agree that this is a relevant topic? Okay. I'll push it one more. Why not? Let's have some. I'll push it one more. Can we also agree that Christians would benefit by learning how to do a much better job of listening, discussing, and speaking about these issues yeah. with less ignorance, less cringiness? Not a word. It, I overrode spell check. I left it in there. With less cringiness. Have you ever read a post, heard someone make a well-intentioned statement on one of these issues, and they meant it with all sincerity of heart, thinking it was the solution, and you just cringed. For me, when I read things that say, I wish all white Christians would just, I'm like, well, since you know all of us, (laughs) tell us. (laughs) Or when I say, I wish all people who call themselves Christians and are Democrats would, I cringe. I cringe. Um, I'd like us to do less of that. (laughs) With less ignorance, cringiness, anger, defensiveness, and more understanding. Or at least a willingness to listen to an opinion you may not agree with, but you might be willing to listen to it just for the sake of trying to understand somebody. People will tell you they want agreement. What they'll settle for is understanding. It's not in your notes. You may want to write that one down. People all crave agreement, but they'll settle for understanding even if you can't agree. You may not end up agreeing with some of the things that I say. That is fully your right, and I respect that, and I honor that. I would hope you would at least make an effort to try and understand even if you don't agree. So for Christians, issues about race, prejudice, discrimination, and injustice have to be approached prayerfully, biblically, humbly, carefully. I cannot tell you how many phone calls and emails I've gotten. Pastor, are you going to be saying this? Are you going to be talking about that? I mean, people are nervous. And everybody said, please be careful. And I want to say, you know what? Thank you. I was planning on being completely reckless I'm glad that after all the time we walk together that you know enough about me that I lead by underthinking, by being just flippant, off the cuff. (laughs) I want you to know I understand on a microcosm what it feels like to be assumed and judged. 
prejudged before I even say a word. Not in any way degree to the scale that some work with, but enough that it validates the conversation to me. I may not know what time it is, but I know what clock we're using. Okay. So, um, let's open some brain windows. Uh, Romans 12, 1 to 2. Uh, let me just ease into this conversation now that we're almost halfway through our time together this morning. Let me ease into this. Uh, let me read verse 2 to you again. Uh, World's longest introduction. Actually, there's a lot of meat in there. I think if you'll listen, I, I might already be beginning to help some of you as God's trying to help, help me. Um, verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Here's what Paul's talking about. Ready for some shock value? I'll give it to you. Here's what Paul's talking about. Mind control. Ooh. Some of you, 2 a.m., YouTube, you're deep into the, I didn't know that this was all really, some of you, this is going way over your head. Way before there was MK Ultra and all kinds of other things, Paul says, you need Christians to understand mind control. He makes a very solid philosophical argument. Thoughts control every single action, every single behavior, every single attitude, every single custom, every one of those things is absolutely a slave to a thought. The Bible is chock full of teaching that say, guard the way you think because the way you think determines who you are. That's why it's important to think accurately about God. Because everything I know about God begins with what I think about God. And if I'm thinking inaccurately about God, I'm not actually worshiping a God who is who He says He is. I'm worshiping a God who is as I think He is. Have I lost anybody yet? I can tell by that I have. Which is not necessarily your fault. That's my fault, the teacher. Let me, I tried to skip to like the seventh block here. Let me go back to the first one. Paul says this, thoughts control actions. Thoughts control behaviors. And there is a war being waged, he says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, for the right to tell you how to think. About everything. There is a war for it. Think about how powerful you can become if you can control how someone else thinks. What Paul says is if you control how people think, you control people. I'm teaching you truth, not my opinion, not spin, not Fox, MSNBC, CNN, Infowars, Al Jazeera, social media. Anybody with a Twitter handle and a million followers, I'm not teaching you that. I'm teaching you what Paul tells us. He says we need to be well aware of the fact that there's a war to control how you think. And it's so important for you to know because whoever tells you or whatever tells you how to think controls all of your actions, all of your behaviors, all of your thoughts. Convince a young lady that at 80 pounds she's fat. You will control her thoughts, her behaviors, her actions, how she looks at herself. Am I starting to make some sense? Paul says there are two 
entities fighting for permission to control your thoughts. And he tells us who they are. He tells us how they're doing it. Every single person in this room, every single person watching online, we are all right now under the control of one of two entities telling us how to think. Well, I'm not. I'm a free thinker. Well, then you're under this one because that one tells you no one should tell you how to think but you. Paul names one group. He says, one group telling you how to think is the world. The world. He doesn't say it's the media. Let's not do sloppy exposition here. Although I can make it, I'll leave that alone. He says it's the world. And he says by default, unless you wake up to that and you turn from the world and say, I don't want to be under control of the world because the world tells you, you tell me what's good. You decide what's good. You decide what's bad. You decide what's pleasurable. You decide what's harmful. You decide what is perfect. You decide what is broken. You decide. Oh, and by the way, we'll help you. That's what the world does. And Paul says, do not copy the behaviors and the customs of the world. Because the world is the opposite of God. The world, let me use a word that's going to be important. The world, he's not describing a person. He's not describing the head of the Illuminati. He's not describing Jay-Z. He's not describing the Bilderberg group. He is describing a sinful system that has existed for thousands of years. The sinful system of sin. He says very clearly, don't keep copying the behaviors and the customs of the world. Paul was a bold guy. If it was a king or an emperor, he would have named them. He's done it in other places. He's showing you and me it's not a couple individuals. It is a sinful, broken system called the world mentioned all throughout the New Testament. And he says you need to be aware that there's a world system that by default tells you and me how to think. And the way they're telling us to think is in the adverse and the opposite of the kingdom of God system. And the only way you break free, here's the gospel for everybody, the only way you ever recover recover from this is you have to have this really painful awakening where you say, wait a minute, what I thought was good isn't really good. What I thought was bad isn't really bad. What I thought was pleasure left me empty. What I thought was, 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 was weakness is really strength. I've been duped. I'm broken. And this is unstomachable for me. And then there's the cross. And here's what Romans 12.2 says the gospel is. The gospel says you don't have to be stuck under the mind control of the world. However, what it will require is you must let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. And what does that mean? You have to come to a place where you say, God, reach down into the way that I think. Challenge the way that I think. Show me where I'm wrong and tear out anything that is not of you and plant in it who you are so that I look at what I used to do and say, I've had a change of heart. I've had a change of mind about the way I used to view everything. And it's so different that I turn away from it. The definition for that process is called repentance. 
Repent means to have a change of mind, thinking, or heart about a previous decision that so impacts you on a core deep desire level that you turn away from it. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's saying, I see now that that was so wrong. I want to turn completely from it and adopt new behavior and never do it again. Difference between saying, I'm sorry, and repentance. Are you with me? Because I'm completely out of breath. Paul's trying to show us that thoughts control everything. And what I want you to see is this. If if you will let anything, anyone, any agenda, any idea of the world tell you how to think, you will not move in the direction of the Spirit. will always move in a divided way. Because what it says is, What this verse essentially says is evil thoughts and worldly thoughts, if left unchallenged and unopposed, you know what they lead to? Worldly systems. Worldly behaviors. Evil thoughts lead to what? Evil decisions, if you act on them. Which is why we need the Spirit to control. I don't like the idea of being under God's control. Isn't that kind of too tough, Pastor? Do you really want to use that word? We're either under the, the control of the world or under the control of God. Absolutely, I want to use that terminology. When Twyla Paris sings about God is in control, we all sing along and should it. In control of what? Everything but your thoughts? Paul spells it out. Do not be controlled by the lust of the flesh, but be controlled by the Spirit. But God isn't one that's going to control you by hostile takeover. He's going to do it by voluntary subjugation. Translation. I really wanted to use the word subjugation so bad. (laughs) You voluntarily let him be in charge. You say, you know what? You don't have to take me over. I submit. Control my thoughts. How do I know I can trust him? Hmm. Good question. Good question. Now, that's a fair question. And I would say, how do you know you can trust whatever's telling you to think the way you think now? They're all out for your best interests? Really? If I, if I felt a release to break into some of that, I would, but I won't. Maybe next week. There's two competing factors. Have I at least got, have you seen that? These are not people, they're systems. You know what God's assignment to Christians is? This is so cool. You see, Jesus talks about a lot, and, and, and his followers didn't get it. I don't know that we do a better job, but here's what he's saying. After salvation, your assignment is to usher in God's kingdom system into the world. In other words, you have to be woke to the idea that there is a system that exists that is sinful, that is the opposite of God. And unless it is challenged or opposed and resisted and uprooted and replaced, it will keep going on. So God doesn't call his people to be pacifists when it comes to spiritual things. We have to know what time it is. We have to discern what is going on. We have to be active. We have to resist it. We have to stand firm against it, Paul says. We have to fight it spiritually, not where there's civilian casualties. That's where Christians get it wrong. We don't fight it spiritually. We snipe and we harp and we rant and we be ignorant and we kill people and that's what the enemy wants us to do and we help them along rather than stepping back from the equation say this at its root is spiritual and yes why can't we just all go up into the tree house and pray and come down and it and, and it be gone i would love if it would work that way but you can't prayer's not just magic pixie dust you sprinkle on things if everybody went up into the tree and prayed for lost people to be saved and never came out no one to be saved prayer is every bit as potent when you're acting out your prayers as it is when you're up in the treehouse. 
If someone never comes down from the treehouse and tells the lost person about the gospel, no matter how much you pray for them to be saved, they're still going to be lost. And unless we are willing to come out from our prayer closets and go back into them and come out of them, you know, like prayer is some isolated incident throughout the day rather than being a lifestyle. But I mean, if we have to compartmentalize that thing that way, why is it any less effective for us to say, because I've been praying, when I'm going to God, I'm not just going to God saying, make it all going away. I'm saying, God, change me, show me what I need to do. Speak to my heart. Uproot my attitudes. Show me people in my circle that I've not been understanding of. Awake me to my own issues and my own difficulties that make, it, that make it nearly impossible for me to move forward with any level of understanding. Use me as an instrument of compassion, an instrument of grace, an instrument of healing. I'm not too proud to admit that I might have something to learn in this regard. That's how spiritual warfare comes up against evil systems. Racism is evil. It is a sin. It is not of God. Racism, or what I mean by that, assigning when the world assigns an advantage or a disadvantage to someone because of their ethnicity. That's a sin, and it's evil, and it needs to be stood against. And how does it happen? I don't have steps 2 through 12. You know where it begins? Believers have to be able to come to God and say, will you please change the way that I think so that I can see this like you see this or else we're just going to be arguing over what to do next and we're going to be so paralyzed. We all, most of us see that this is a problem. We wouldn't, agree on to, we wouldn't agree on where it came from. We wouldn't agree to what degree it's a problem but I think we're all fatigued by it and I think we're ready to do something about it and many of us are stuck in the what do I do about it? If I speak up, I'm going to say the wrong thing. If I'm silent, then that's not good either. So where do I land on this? That's where I'm hoping I can help you. I think I might be able to get one point in here and then we'll close. The first step to changing a bad, evil, sinful system is to challenge, change, uproot, and replace the bad, evil, sinful thinking that created it and sustains it in the first place. Changing bad behaviors always begins with changing bad thinking. Yes, I would love for my son to just do what I do because I say it, and sometimes that's just what it takes, but typically along the line, there's a thought going through his mind that told him to do what he did or what he didn't do. And my job as a parent is to somehow get to the root of what that real thought is and stop treating the symptom and get down to whatever the root is in there, uproot that thing, and replace it with something that's God-honoring. Because I know if he'll start thinking differently, the behavior will follow along those good thoughts rather than just teaching behavior modification. Christianity is not behavior modification. It is complete rebirth. And it begins with, because our behaviors are not insulated and ancillary. Our behaviors are the products of our thinking. I say all that to say if there's evil thinking in the if there's evil behavior in the world, it comes from evil thinking. And that evil thinking doesn't come from God. It comes from another system. That brings me to my big idea and also the conclusion. <laughs> the big idea is that most people fail to recognize that racism is systematic or systemic. It's not just a string of individual racist acts. And the only way to advance the fight against the evil of racism is to save both people and systems. And what I see 
and what I hear in a lot of the conversations is that different pockets of people who look at problems and issues of race, and let me narrow this down because let me, this is a global historic issue. I'm most familiar with racism in terms of American history from the late 1700s to present as it relates to whites and blacks. That is a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset that hangs underneath a smaller topic of racism, that hangs underneath a bigger topic of injustice, that hangs under the biggest topic of the sin system. So when I talk about a lot of these things, I realize I might be pulling out very narrow slivers of things, but I also recognize being white is is not a universal advantage. There are different places in the world where my advantages that I may or may not have here don't translate to other cultures. Don't translate if I would relocate. So I, some of this is still very contextualized. I, I, I get that. But the two different pockets of thinking that I hear, one says the solution or the solution, let me get rid of that word, progress to be made in dealing with sins of racism is to focus on individuals. In other words, racism isn't... Here's one of the thoughts. Not my thought, one of the thoughts. Um, racism is mostly dead in the United States, is a thought, because uh, we've abolished slavery. We don't use the N-word. We, uh, we have friends from different ethnicities, and we don't personally see ourselves as being abusive to people of color. And so we say, if the problem still exists, it's some weird individuals, and cer- or, or, you know, it's some people, weird in some context. It's just individual racists' acts by people that we don't agree with. And if we can just convert them to Christianity, and we can convert everybody to Christianity, then this problem will go away. And they focus a very, very, very individual solution. And they're also saying, let's not look at the system. I'm not talking this morning, when you hear system, this is where I've already run into tension with people. I'm not talking about a political system or political party. I'm talking about I spent a lot of time trying to say, the system I'm talking about is what? The world. World, not just the American political system. Let's not be so naive to think that we're the only ones on the earth that's ever tackled this issue. If it was just a personal issue, it would have died out a long time ago. Right? Slavery is, is, is as early as the first couple pages of the Bible. Okay. So I hear one group of thinking that says, hey, progress is just to silence the outliers those few people who are really angry racists, let's silence them, let's not give them any shine, let's distance ourselves from them, and let's convert them, and it'll go away. Then the other argument is says, let's forget all the individuals, we've got to fight this whole system, because this whole system is unfair, and the entire system supports advantaging people who are educated, and who are white, and who are male, and who have wealth, and we need to you know, let's forget all the individuals. Let's fight the system. If we change the system, we'll change racism. And both are right and both are incomplete. Both are right and wrong. What the Word tells us is that there are sinful people in this world. They need conversion and compassion. And there are sinful systems in the world. And it needs resistance and replacement. Fair? Based on what you're seeing? I want us to at least understand that there is merit an individual work to do. But there is also this huge world system that if we just say it doesn't exist, it just continues along without opposition. 
But if we make it this big, bad, ugly giant that is everywhere and indomitable, then we say, like Billy Graham said, it's futile. You know Billy Graham said that? Um, this is really an awkward place to end, but it's probably the best place to end. Um, here's why I have hope. I started this, some of you have had this experience long before I have. About two and a half months into this study process and education process, I was so riddled with guilt and discomfort and overwhelmed, I almost never wanted to think about any of this ever again. It was too much. I said, God, please challenge my thinking, and he over-delivered. And then I started to read, I started getting connected in different forums with people who think, who I, I don't even know if we think differently, they just have thought more critically and for a longer time and have had different experiences than I have. And so I put myself in these different circles. I'm calling this doctoral student out in Indiana and say, will you coach me? I don't, I do it. Will you help me? Because you, you are well advanced, well networked, well read. You've been doing this for 20 years. And at first it is so pessimistic the outlook i'm reading all the you need to read this book you need to contact this person you have this phone call and i'm and, and i'm like so where do we go from here I, I get it there's a big problem where do we go from here and most of them are, well good luck with that <laughs> i had one conversation with an individual this week they said so what are you talking about at your church this sunday and i told them i said well what's your goal i said well my goal is to be able to stand before them and ask if they'd be willing to let god challenge our thinking he goes good luck with that so pessimistic then, I read one of these assigned books of reading, and part of it has a, you know, I'm reading through Dr. King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech, and his statement about, and I'm going to get, please forgive me, I, I'm not going to try and quote it from memory because I don't want to get it wrong, but he talks about little children from all different states and races holding hands and playing together. And right after that paragraph, the author says, and it was at the same time that Billy Graham at that point in his journey of understanding things, said, unfortunately, until Jesus comes, that'll never happen, so it's futile to even try and work in that direction. Many of us don't know that that was part of his... I'm not eviscerating him for that because his position evolved and changed and challenged over years. And he walked away from, from some of those statements, well-intentioned, but a little ignorant. And then became really an effort to have... And, I, and, I, and I'm... And I'm reading that, I'm like, well, is, was Billy right? If We're not going to save everybody. The Bible tells us. Let's go win everybody to the Lord. Conversion is the solution. Well, not everybody's going to be saved, the Bible tells us. That's great tension to wrestle with. I'm supposed to go witness to people knowing full well they won't all get saved, so why bother? And I'm thinking to myself, is, is Brother Graham right? Is this just an impossibility that in my lifetime, that Chase and Isaiah, my two boys, that there's no hope for them to be able to be any more collectively aware and embracing the beautiful differences, the loveliness of the unalikeness of how God created us, knowing full well that the Bible tells me very clearly in heaven, every tongue, every tribe, and every race, the picture that John described was not one where we stripped one another of our racial identity. It's not a colorblind heaven, nor is it a universal language that says every tribe, tongue, and race. He says, what I see in heaven is not 
a likeness in the sense of we're all one color. We're all whatever. We're all purple now. That's terrible because you all like purple because of the ravens. Bad color to choose. <laughs> or that we're all going to have one dominant language. One do- it's beautiful because what it shows me is that, ra- is that color blindness and snow blindness is not the direction God wants us to go as believers because what he says is in heaven we see diversity working well. So what we ought to be doing is make it work well on earth so it's not unfamiliar when we get there. And I'm wondering to myself, is this an impossibility for my boys? My son is going to kindergarten and I'm having a hard time with it. Worship team, you can come. We'll end right here. I'm having a hard time with Chase going to kindergarten. I'm sending him to public school. I had no idea that me doing that would make me a target for all kinds of judgment and character judgment. Um, It's my choice to make. I'll answer for it. You won't. Relax. <laughs> He's going to public school right down the street here. And I just came to the realization that for the next, starting on Tuesday morning and for the next 13 years of his life, he'll spend most of his daytime hours with someone other than me. And I hope I've prepared him for that. Having a hard time. He's having a hard, I'm having a hard time because he's having a hard time. He sleeps next to me at night because he's still afraid to be by himself at night. I answer for it, you don't, okay? <laughs> and I noticed he started sucking his thumb recently. I asked him the other night, hey, bud, why are, you st- why are you sucking your thumb at night? He's like, I do this when I'm anxious. What are you anxious about? That I won't make friends at school. None of my friends from pre-K-4, they're all going back to Christian school and I'm going to public school. Buddy, how can I help you with that? Will you ask Jesus to help me? I asked Jesus to help you. We prayed about it. We pray about it every night. This last Thursday night, there's a good payoff to this story. I didn't think of it until I was standing here, and I just feel like this is where I need to leave this conversation because it's a heavy conversation, but this is going to flip the script, and I think this is going to give us some hope. So my son, his BFF, as he calls her, her, that's another issue. (laughs) You know, he's sad that his BFF is not going to be in his class. She's his security blanket. She's also a follower of his, so he knows he can be in charge of someone. So we go to back to school night this week, and uh, we're meeting the teacher, and I'm walking in the classroom with Chase. He's meeting all his friends, and he's finding his seat. And we're in there, and he's just sitting in the seat, kind of keeping to himself, which is very unusual for my son, if you know him. He tends to be, if he's not in charge, there's issues. And um, he hears... He hears someone scream his name from the back of the room. And he turns around, and his BFF is walking into the classroom. And he says, Iwantan, her name. She runs over, and she hugs him. It's so cute because she's like four inches taller than he is. And she hugs him. She takes him by the hand. And Iwantan and Chase start walking around the classroom together, station by station, looking at the thing. They're laughing. They're joking. I'm seeing my son comfortable. Again, I'm seeing him socially at ease again. And what's lost in this whole story is that he is as white as white can be and she is as black as black can be. He knows she's black. Among other things, he, if you call him white, he will be very offended. He is beige.
somewhere along the line, some outside system hasn't taken control of the way that they think about what they were doing just yet. There's something so precious and beautiful about that. Would you and I be willing to let the Holy Spirit refresh some of that thinking in our own life? So that we can uproot a world system that doesn't want us to talk about this, that doesn't want us to understand, that benefits from us remaining divided. You have to see that. There are powerful forces that benefit from keeping this conversation alive and even spinning it in different ways because it divides us in those divisions. There's a lot that goes with that. At the same time, I'm not going to look at someone who has been run over, who is bleeding, who is hurting, and saying, you know what? I didn't get hit by that car. It must not exist. Or I don't like the thought that a car hit you. I'm not a car driver. I'm not even a car owner. Am I making sense? We have room to grow. We have a great leader. And he reminded me through Chase and Iwanton, although he does not understand that when we order, he calls, we order wonton soup when we get Chinese delivered. He doesn't understand it's not Iwanton soup. (laughs) And I don't care. I don't care. He loves it and he embraces it. And he likes that she's different. He thinks it's so great. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I feel in some ways I have not accomplished anything today because there's all this content you gave me that leaves unspoken on this piece of paper. But I don't need affirmation from human beings today. I don't need praise. I don't need criticism. Well, I probably do. It'll make me better. But at the end of the day, this is not about me trying to make myself feel good that I've done my little token part. I just want to be a voice that says, I am willing to let you change the way that I think. And if I'm going to title a series, A Conversation About, then it needs to feel like we're having a conversation even if one of us is talking because I hope that maybe today I've introduced a new vocabulary to this group. Maybe I've made it less taboo to talk about some of these things. Or at the very least, maybe I've at least said, your pastor is here to listen. And this is a safe place for you to be understood and heard. And you will help me and maybe I can help you. Lord, may we continue to learn what it's like to replicate heaven on earth here in our little church in this community. May people, even though we might not get media coverage and we might not be on the front page of magazines, will you help us get it right or at least get it better? Somewhere between best and where we're at, there's at least better for us. Holy Spirit, what are you asking me to do? What are you asking us to do? Whatever it is, we're going to say yes to you. Maybe it's to read something. Maybe it's to have a conversation. Maybe it's to just meditate and think deeply about some different things. We just give you permission to use us. Lord, I pray if there is anyone listening to this sermon here or online that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that recognize that they're broken, that they've been under the control of some bad thinking. And they want to be liberated from that. That they would have the courage right now 
to call out to you, to admit that they're broken, to believe, God, that you have a son named Jesus who paid the penalty for all of our sins, who hung on the cross and died, who rose from the dead, who's alive today. May we choose to make you both our Lord and our Savior. If you want to make that right today between you and God, pray this simple prayer right where you're at right now. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I admit I am a broken, sinful person. But based on what I'm hearing and what I'm feeling in my heart right now, I believe there's hope through you. I accept forgiveness for my sins. I choose you as my Savior. And I choose you to be in control now. I choose you to control how I think about me and others. Because I know if I'll let you tell me how to think, my behaviors will lead me in the path of what really is good, what really is perfect, what really is pleasing. Thank you for saving me. Amen.